0: Welcome to Beyond. Uh, we're coming to you out of Newport Beach, California today. We have a really special guest, Valerie Shepard, who's a award-winning, best-selling author of, Drumroll, please, happy to be me. And I think it's a really fascinating uh, topic that I really want to delve in today. Uh, she's a lecturer at the UCI School of Business. Um, she's a marketing expert, leadership coach. She's a life coach, which a lot of people need that help sometimes when they get a little lost in this journey. So uh, Valerie, I'm so excited to have you here. And I think you wrote a book on a very interesting topic. Um, Happy to be me and I think this notion of happiness. Um, I read a statistic one time and I've shared it uh, in a previous uh, video where um, the top grossing industry in the world is arm sales followed by alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceuticals. And the last three don't speak to state management and our desire to be happy. And when there's a disconnect in our life we go to things that we think will make us happy or at least eradicate the pain. So um, one of the things I, you know, I'm fascinated by the title of your book because happiness truly is a
1: universal desire, right? And you mentioned that in your book. It's my understanding, my experience, all the research that I did. There's not a pocket of the world where people aren't, even if they are happy, wanting to be more happy. And you know, the stuff that you said about pharmaceuticals and I call them in my book, the false elixirs of feel good. Mm, It's like we buy into these things, and and I'm no different, right? I bought into things that I thought were going to give me this um, really beautiful experience of happiness that went on and on and on, and none of that happened.
0: Right. So as you've done all this research, um, there seems that I I don't think I'm stretching here. There seems to be a lot of unhappy people. I've I've met billionaires that are just miserable, Mm -hmm. multimillionaires that are just not happy.
1: People who are unhappy before they retire and unhappy when and maybe even less happy after they retire.
0: Yeah. So what do you think that is? I mean, what is it that makes people fundamentally unhappy?
1: Well, I don't know what makes them fundamentally unhappy. I would say the problem with, quote unquote, finding happiness is that we're looking for it. That we think it's outside of us. That we, we sink our ideas. We're all conditioned to believe that it comes from a certain thing. Right. For some of it's, it's success. For some of it's a relationship. For others, it's the identity of mother. I mean, there are these things that we kind of pass down generation to generation of what happiness is and where to go find it. And none of those things, while they're wonderful when you have them. I mean, I had lots of things and they did not change my level of deep happiness. So it's wonderful to have all those things and true deep happiness comes from something else.
0: Right, that's powerful. So in your book, you mentioned a very interesting concept about the masks we use to cover up, um, what we don't accept about ourselves and what we don't want others to see about us. So um, it's a very interesting insight. Can you shed some light on that concept?
1: Sure, the the idea of um, wearing masks is probably not new until you ask people what masks they wear and they're not exactly sure. And then you give a couple of examples and they're like, oh, I do that. So whenever- What's a couple
0: examples of masks?
1: Whenever you put on a smiley face when you're feeling crappy, that's a mask. That's the I'm okay, never let them see you sweat, nobody wants to know what's going on with me anyway mask. That's the don't get too close to me, it's not comfortable mask. Um, The people who put on anger when actually they're feeling fear. So the angry mask is like, don't say that to me. And what they're afraid of is that if I tell you what's going on with me, the vulnerability and the truth underneath this dynamic that we're having, you won't like me, I'll lose stature or status or face or something like that. So I come at you with anger to get you to take a step back, but underneath that mask is really fear. Right, that's
0: powerful. I I mean, I've heard the concept of masks, but as you describe that, I think that's a lot of people will be able to certainly rate to that. Another profound part of your book that I found riveting, and you know, I, I look at a journey uh, of a woman like yourself, um, the culture in the 60s and the great divide of being an African-American woman, and that, that experience juxtaposed with a Marine father who's all about discipline, mission, and whatever it takes, you do it. And almost like you suppress the emotions of what's really happening in your world at that time and just soldier on almost. So um, talk to us about that journey and how you came to peace with that 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 sort of divide in the 60s growing up in
1: that experience and then having a father like that wow the divide in the 60s i would love to say we're done with it but i don't feel like we are yeah. and uh, so the divide in the 60s my experience was hearing from the adults around me that black people have to work twice as hard to get half as much i don't know how much people are saying that this day these days but a lot of the young students in my classes that's not an identity that's so far removed like they really feel they have to do more show more prove more than their non-black counterparts um and that's a problem yeah and so growing up in that i didn't know this until i started doing the work that resulted in the book i didn't know this but inside me there was this sense that no matter what i did it was never going to be enough that i would never be deemed enough so i spent a lot of time proving you know, trying to prove what I was capable of. I know that my father was on that path, too. Uh, the military gave him an opportunity to do it within a, the confines of a very disciplined um, culture, and he did very well making it to captain from an enlisting band. Um But this constant chasing of st- getting approval from outside of me, people saying, oh, she is smart, oh, she is articulate, oh, she is capable. And I did very well in my career and at the same time i never felt safe i never felt like i had arrived i always wanted to feel those things but shortly thereafter once i got somewhere i started to you know feel a little uncomfortable not really trust that i was okay and seen and understood and heard and valued and all those things profound
0: i mean and so how how did you work through those emotions are they simply emotions i mean clearly they're truths that you've experienced firsthand um, but you're very accomplished, you're writing books, you're lecturing at UCI. Um, is it still a pro- in process? Is it still a journey you're working on? Or has this book allowed you to see some insights as to how to deal and
1: think about that experience? The the getting comfortable with the, um, I call it the false self. Some people call it the demons within, um, the questioning, the wounded child. There are a lot of different names for the... You know, the, the subconscious, unconscious aspects of everybody. So for myself, my little false self, my little girl who got some wounds as she was growing up, I'm very comfortable with her. I have conversations with her. I take over as the parent now. So on the journey that I'm on, I'm beyond, um, you know, this first step in my four-step process is to wake up wake up to what's going on, wake up and see yourself, wake up in self-awareness. So my wake up was to see that some of the stories I had in my mind that made me the victim of somebody else being the villain mm-hmm. were created when I was young and in, a, in dynamics that are not really true this moment. There are some dynamics in, this, you know, in the current day right. that still need to be dealt with, but they're not the ones that created this identity of not being enough. And so what I've had to do is make peace with that forgive the dynamic, forgive myself for how I misinterpreted, forgive the other person for whatever they did. Like it's a lot of forgiveness work, Mm -hmm. a lot of going deeply into it and understanding where did this come from and then releasing it and spiraling up as I say, go deeper into yourself and spiral higher into your consciousness. And I say in the dedication of the book, that's the only way I know to have lasting happiness is to raise your consciousness.
0: That's profound. It's almost like, it's like we give things meaning and I say, why do we give it that meaning? The emotion we get from something, we give something a certain meaning to it. Somebody offended us. Somebody
1: said the wrong thing. Who says it means that right at any level. That's so, our perception, our interpretation. Right. That's how we are receiving it. Someone else could receive the same words with the same facial expression, with the same energy and get something completely different. Completely. And it's, it's based on us and our history and our wounding and our, conditioning, our patterns of response and behavior and interpretation, all of that is underneath every single interaction.
0: That's so true. So you mentioned the four steps, you mentioned the first one. What were the other three? Because that was also interesting in your book.
1: So the first step is wake up to the truth of who you are. You're more than a human being. You've got divinity within you, anchor in that, and you'll go a different place. Step two is once you accept that, you have to shake up and release everything that doesn't align with that. So it's like if I see myself as this magnificent being, um, image and likeness, many of the major spiritual and religious traditions talk about that fragment, that we are fragments of the divine. Mm. So how could I then also see myself as not enough, Mm. not lovable, Mm. not special, not worthy? It's incongruent. It's incongruent. Right. So having to understand, okay, so that doesn't work. So how do I let that go so I can rise even more into that awakening. And then step three is now that you've done those two and you understand that, make up a new story of you in your life. Not just your life but who am I going to be in my life? How am I going to be Valerie? How do I show up? How do I show compassion for myself and others? What am I here for? What's my purpose beyond this idea of success? Like is there something that's wanting to come into the world through me and only through me? Mm-hmm. And then step four is take up the reins and go live it. And that's how do you, on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, actually be that. Like, right. that's where the rubber meets the road. It's not about head knowledge. It's not, my book is not about read it and then move on. It's about turning it into a practice that actually then frees you into a whole new space of peace, love, joy, and freedom.
0: That's huge. I mean, that's, that's some good recipes for sure. Um, what have you found to be the secret to happiness then? Is it applying the four principles for you? I'm sure people ask you that all the time. So what is the secret? What is the secret sauce? What is it we should be doing? So it sounds like apply the principles and uh, and put it into everyday practice, or is it, is that too simplified?
1: Uh, it is simple, isn't it? (laughs) Sometimes we try to make things simple things really hard. Sometimes that's because, we feel better about ourselves when we overcome big challenges like walking to school two miles uphill both way, right? Like we do that because we want to feel better about ourselves, but what if it is really easy and really simple and you don't need to struggle to find happiness? So the, the key in my mind is this thing I call self-awareness, self-acceptance and self-love. That's the centerpiece of the work that I do, understanding what makes me tick that it's more than I like Rocky Road ice cream and I love sushi. It's got to go deeper than that. Where did I learn ideas about myself? How do I bring those to the fore? What happens when I feel vulnerable or scared? What happens when I feel threatened? That's about me. That's coming from inside of me and understanding that. And the self-acceptance piece is it is. So resisting it doesn't change it. Right. So the acceptance is how do I get into a peaceful place with who I am? I can still change it. I can get into a peaceful place with what I don't like about the world and still work to change it. I'm just not in resistance and anger and frustration and pushing it away. So self-acceptance is cool. And then self-love, you know, a lot of people feel like love has to come from the outside in. It actually comes from the inside out. Right. And the more I love self, the more I have love to love you in all of your permutations. Even the ones that I might say, I don't really like that about Ben. But I still could be in an unconditional loving relationship with you, even in spite of whatever it is doesn't work for me.
0: And in today's world, that's saying something because the unconditional part is really lacking it's really uh, in today's to culture, it. it seems like to me. It's really hard. So you, you had something that was also very um, poignant for me in the book that I think is true that I think the audience would really appreciate hearing. So many of the emotions people have are anchored in an experience they've, they've gone through, Right. Um, how, is it, how important is it to reject the thoughts and beliefs of others in the process of experiencing more happiness?
1: Absolutely penultimate. It's absolutely critical to be able to fly your own path, to, to decide that I don't care what... I have this conversation with my mom because she'll tell me, she says things like, well, they say, and I'm like, who cares what they say? Who are they anyway? I mean and I work at a research one institution down the road a piece called University of California Irvine. So definitely data is important and knowing the bell curve and they say is important in some some things. But when it comes to you and your life and what's going to really create that connection to happiness that's within you, you kind of have to be willing to go it alone. And you have to be willing to withstand the naysayers who all say, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why don't you want this? I do this. You have to be willing to go, okay. Uh, A a colleague of mine once told me about a hand in the sand and he said, you know, you reach down in the sand and you're looking for those beautiful shells and some of the sand falls through your fingers and some of it's left in the palm and that's what you get to do. People bring you ideas and they think of them all as grains of sand. And then pick the ones you want to keep in your palm, like a precious shell, those are the ones you keep and you act on and you grow with until they're not anymore. Right. And then you let those go. And so it's not that the people are wrong or they don't love you or they don't know what they're talking about. It's just that you're making a conscious decision that what they're offering you isn't working for you at this moment in time. Could someday, but maybe not right now.
0: You know what's really interesting is in our society, I think control and influence is celebrated. If you want to be the man or the woman, you want to be successful. It's about control influence over everybody else. And it runs really counter to what you're saying, but what you're saying really will bring a lot more peace. So it's almost like our culture is conditioned to a very unhealthy approach to people. As we live in this very materialistic culture, it's about control, dominant success, win, all that stuff. And yet there's so many people that have zero peace and are fully self-medicated on any number of things. Maybe that's an opportunity to stop and say, wait a minute, pump the brakes. Uh, maybe there's a better way of looking at things. Uh, back after this message from our sponsor. Serenatex is focused on eliminating the biggest challenge to migraine management, namely the subjective diagnosis of migraines and standard migraine drug therapy that results in undesirable effects and unproven results. Healthcare and lost productivity costs for migraines is $78 billion a year and employers lose 113 million lost workdays from migraines. But did you know that more than 95% of those with chronic migraines have never sought help, received a diagnosis, or been treated? Serenitex has discovered a patentable technology solution for the non-invasive detection and screening of migraines. We've tested our approach on actual migraine patients, and it works. To learn more, visit serenitex.com. Welcome back. So as you wrote this book, and again, I want to show everybody the title, the the cover. Amazing book. And you've already heard that she really has some very powerful, profound insights. What is the biggest lesson you've learned in writing this book?
1: You're going to be surprised. The biggest lesson I learned in writing the book is there's no way to write a book. Mm. Interesting. And so the reason I say that as one of the biggest lessons is because people are absolutely adamant for a lot of things they don't know how to do that there is a one way to do them, including be happy, including fall in love, including find the right, the right career path or, or to know what their purpose is. And there's not. And when we go into spaces like this where we're actually being called into our highest self and the freedom to create, like really creatively envision and bring forth into this world something through us it's really important that we not get caught up in there's a way to do it and I was with this book and there a couple of times when I put it down I was like and I literally said these words what am I doing this for I don't know how to write a book and then I would start to hear a little kind of nudge inside me saying keep going hmm. so I'd write some more <laughs> I don't know how to write a book I would hear keep going and then eventually I learned It's not about knowing how to do it, it's just about trusting the instinct to do it and then flowing with that, like being in the flow of that and letting go of these preconceived notions that I had, which were also a little bit tied to the wounding of not being enough, Mm -hmm. not being worthy, who wants to listen to me, what do I have to share? So some of that was dancing in the whole idea of my preconceived notions about being an author.
0: You know, what's amazing. There's so many people out there that have these preconceived notions. I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. Who am I to do anything? And yet that's a lot of that's fear based. Right. Um, but if they could just release that and let that just go and not worry about the judgment of if it's successful or not, because if it benefits one person, I would argue it's worth doing. Exactly. Right. It and doesn't sometimes it's worth doing
1: because it's coming through you. Right. It's worth doing because it's a way for you to acknowledge to yourself this message came through me. If nobody ever buys it, it's, it's for you to be fully actualized, fully realized, fully expressed yeah. as you.
0: Because there's so many people bottled up with not able to reveal. You know, the funny thing about corporate America, and I always go back to corporate America, it's designed to keep people in a box. They can't say certain things. It's got to be the company mantra. It's got to be a certain way. And there's so many people living quiet lives of desperation saying, yeah, but this is really me but I can't express really me. And I think there's a lot
1: of dynamics going on with that, right? So, um, Self-expression, like being fully self-expressed is one of the key dynamics inside happiness. Right. I talk about, um, I take a stand, I wrote an article once, and I think it's in the book, I'm taking a stand for selfishness. And people get really freaked out, especially my young millennial and Gen Z students. They're like, oh my God, how can I? Like, that's narcissism and all this stuff. And then I explain to them, I'm talking about a healthy, responsible sort of selfishness, which means I make my life about me. Mm-hmm. I don't make your life about me. I don't try to make you focus on me, but I do make decisions with me at the forefront first and foremost. And that's part of step three. Right. Like, how am I going to be different in my life? How am I going to make me important in my life so that my life matters at least to me?
0: I'm just—I'm so impressed with your self-actualization, your ability to reflect in very challenging situations and come out so amazing in your perspective, in your heart, in your mind. Um, so, as I think about your journey, there's got to be one or two people that really had a big impact or influenced your journey. If so, who—who who would they? Who would that one or two be?
1: Mm, there's so many people who've left really indelible marks on me. Obviously my parents and my father with the Marine Corps and um, the culture of, of never giving up, uh, there's some real beauty inside that that kept me going with the book, keeps me going with the stuff going on since the stroke and mm-hmm. all of that. So that's really powerful. One of my first mentors was uh, Dr. John Kappas, the late Dr. John Kappas. He started the Hypnosis and Motivation Institute up in LA. And he, this quote is actually in the book. Um, where he talks about um, ignoring appearances be unmoved by appearances and therefore appearances move which basically is saying maybe everything that you see is not all there is to see and to stay in peace and acceptance even while stuff is unfolding and then what you're seeing will actually move into a vibration that's maybe in alignment with you better so that was really important and then another really important one was a boss that I had at Procter & Gamble. And I was having struggle with a concept that dealt with stuff moving through the pipeline, inventory moving through the pipeline, and I just was, it was not locking in for me. And I went into his office, I was very afraid of letting him know that I didn't know how to do this thing for this spreadsheet. And he got up from behind his desk, went over to his round table, and he has these things called fireballs those cinnamon jawbreaker handies. I hate those things, (laughs) but he always had a big jar full of them and he dumped them on a table and he very, um, I say lovingly, it was just, it was like, it felt like doting. He carefully moved the fireballs through different parts of the pipeline to show me how the inventory would move through the pipeline. And I've always remembered that as, Um, a demonstration of what servant leadership looks like. Mm. And what I don't know that I always, um, well, I know for a fact, I don't always live up to the standard that he established in me Mm -hmm. of um, being so kind and so gentle with somebody who's saying, I have no idea how to do this. Um, I can sometimes be a little aggressive or I get that military energy in me. But but that is a standard that I try to live up to when I'm, especially when I'm coaching and, and working with my students.
0: That is powerful. Thank you. That's uh, amazing. So what are one or two pearls of wisdom that you would share with the audience? You say, do these one or two things. You could really transform your personal and professional life.
1: So I'm a big Albert Einstein fan, and um, one of his quotes is something like this. um, The intuitive mind is a sacred gift. The conscious mind is its faithful servant. We have created a society that worships the servant and has forgotten the gift. And so that sets up the piece of wisdom that I want to share with people is please get out of your head. Like I was a walking, talking head till well into my 40s and just highly analytical, which I love about me, highly quantitative. I needed that as a vice president all through my career. I love that about me. Yet, I was disconnected from some other important aspects of the self. The physical body sends us messages all the time. I was disconnected from my heart and didn't know how much pain and anguish was stuck there and coming out in some of my behaviors and the way I showed up. And so, I, I suggest to everybody quiet the head, get into the heart, learn that you are more than your intellect and your knowledge and your ability and your skills and your talent and your influence. And there's some. Other parts of you that you might want to get into contact with. Meditation is my favorite way to do that quieting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yoga and other practices that get you embodied. I did Korean style of yoga called Don Yoga that helped me to get more embodied and get connected to the, the physicality of me. And I think that's really important. And then the last piece of, the last piece of advice I would say is play more. Play more. I'm a certified laughter yoga instructor. I got that certification on purpose because when I went and did laughter yoga, it just brought so much fun. And it also moves energy.
0: I was gonna say laughter yoga seems like an oxymoron because when I've done yoga, I'm not laughing. That's all I'm saying, but that's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's not the same as the asanas um, in yoga where you're holding a position, but it is really beautiful form of um, moving inner energy, laughter has been studied for decades as being a healing modality. And so when you can get into play and laughter, not only are you moving energy that may be stuck and is not serving you, but you're also sort of oxygenating the brain. And so you're freeing up this powerful super processor that you have to even notice little changes that might come up with the new solution that you haven't been able to figure out. What's the next chapter of your book? What's the thing that would really help your teenager? Like play really frees us up and livens us. It changes routine. It's a really powerful way for us to evolve.
0: Yeah, I think when people are super wound up and super tight, they're not very effective. I know I'm not, but if you can relax, I used to fly planes right out here um, when I was a student pilot. And I remember when I was relaxed and having a good time, everything flowed and when I didn't, Everything was a pucker factor. Everything's like, and that's not the way you want to approach life.
1: Is there anything you want to tell the audience that we haven't covered? Um, I think the most important thing for the audience is to remember that there is happiness inside every single moment. It's not a matter of going and finding it. It's a matter of being awake and noticing what's already here. And to the extent that we can notice what's already here, we set fertile ground within our vibrational field to receive even more. So start where you are, Arthur Ashe. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. So start right now, what's going on that you can be happy about? What can you bring great gratitude to in this very moment?
0: That's huge, thank you so much. Where can they learn more about you? Where could they go?
1: They can go to my website. The website for the book is called happy2beme.net. You'll find some videos there. You can order the book there at a discount versus the Amazon price. My retreats and stuff are there. And there's a contact me. And you can also look me up on LinkedIn, Valerie R. Shepherd. Shepard.
0: Well, all I can say as well, because you had so much wisdom that we could literally be here for two hours unpacking.
1: Um, Have me you. back, Ben.
0: Yeah, I'll come back and we'll know. talk some more. I, I, it's profound. And you mentioned the stroke. And yet, look at your, your radiance. Look at your perspective. Nothing's held you back. Um, and nothing's, uh, you know, is, is uh, I think Albert Einstein said one time, he goes, God doesn't roll dice. I think God is providential and the God within us.
1: So thank you so much. Hallelujah. Amen to that. That's,
0: That's it from beyond wardrobe today provided by John Barbado, South coast plaza. Look for Jose. Uh, as always, you can find beyond Ben Bobo on the internet, of course, um, LinkedIn. You can find us on YouTube, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all the usual suspects. And remember until next time becoming is better than being. When we founded Stradling in 1975, we made a commitment to helping our clients to succeed and create opportunities for business growth throughout California and beyond. Our people share cutting edge focus in guiding the critical transactions and disputes of our clients. And we've developed a deep bench of contacts and resources to get the job done. As trusted advisors to technology, life science, software, and medical device companies we've invested in building our expertise developing the best of legal talent and the readiness to serve the business community from our commitment to our clients to our deep involvement in the communities we serve we understand our job is your success